Chapter 5 The Consequences of the Promiscuous Ownership Wood and the Indian Act, 1867-1883 The cutting of wood on our forest land has not abated nor has any steps been taken to arrest the unwarranted trespasses that are daily committed by white persons at the instigation of unruly and unmanageable Indians, besides which hundreds of cords of wood have been taken away through the roads opened by these Indians and white trespassers during the past summer of which we cannot find out the offenders. Gahnawage Chiefs to Edmund Walker Head, 1855. In the years following Confederation, the federal government concentrated on territorial expansion and asserted its control over territory it believed it owned. Canada was able to expand west of the Great Lakes after the Hudson's Bay Company transferred its dubious land title in 1869. After significant conflicts with Indigenous peoples on the prairies in 1869-1870, the Canadian government employed surveyors to create an agricultural settlement grid that would allow for the dispossession of First Nations and the emplacement of mostly white farmers. On the heels of surveyors came police officers whose job was to protect the new settlers and to supervise the continued dispossession and disenfranchisement of the original inhabitants. Federal officials and First Nations negotiated treaties requiring the latter to relinquish lands in exchange for small reserve territories, as well as certain rights and privileges. All of this occurred while Indigenous nations on the prairies faced ecological and economic disaster, particularly the decimation of the bison herds on which they depended. All eyes, especially in the Department of Indian Affairs, DIA, were on the Northwest as the newly constituted Dominion strove to expand its reach across the continent. Many historians have looked at Canadian policy and action in the Northwest during this period, which was focused on the dispossession and acculturation of Indigenous peoples. But fewer have studied the DIA's dealing with eastern communities such as Gahnawage, which the department considered to be more advanced along the path to civilization, and thus more prepared for enfranchisement. This chapter examines the human and environmental consequences of DIA legal and political intrusions into Gahnawage at a time when Canada was invading Indigenous territory farther west. In these years immediately following Confederation, legislators enacted a number of policy changes that enabled DIA interference in the daily life and governance of First Nations. To become the primary authority in the lives of Indigenous people, the department focused on strengthening its own hand while diminishing the ability of Indigenous leaders to govern. It had no interest in supporting the legal orders of Indigenous nations, but it was also often unwilling to impose itself and its laws in a decisive way. Whether it was actively interfering with Indigenous governance or maintaining a stance of strategic indifference, it did all it could to weaken Indigenous nations. This chapter unfolds in the midst of the power vacuum created in Gahnawage by the actions and non-actions of the DIA, and its focus is wood. Who has the right to fell and use trees? 
whose laws apply, and how does colonial interference affect ordinary Kahnawagehronu? The Department of Indian Affairs and Indian Policy, 1876-1884 The 1876 Indian Act summarized, replaced, and updated all previous Indian legislation and was the foundation on which all subsequent Canadian Indian policy was built. It advanced the assimilationist, genocidal thrust of Indian policy while also maintaining aspects of previous legislation that were supposed, in the thinking of colonial elites, to protect Indians from Euro-Canadian vices. The most significant change from the 1869 Gradual Enfranchisement Act was the provision of an elected band council system that could be applied only to a community that officially requested it. The Indian Act also maintained the rule, dating from the 1851 Act for Lower Canada, Chapter 4, that an Indian woman who married a non-Indian man lost her status, which also meant that such men could not gain status through marriage. Most amendments to the Indian Act in later years strengthened the hand of the DIA in its relationships with Indigenous communities. For example, An 1879 amendment enabled the DIA to allot reserve land, whereas this power had previously rested with the band. The 1880 Indian Act allowed the Superintendent General to recognize only Indigenous leaders who were elected according to the provisions of the Act. Indian agents were given the powers of justice of the peace in an 1881 amendment and the same power as stipendiary magistrate or police magistrate the following year. Each of these amendments reduced the power of Indian bands, racialized political institutions created by the Indian Act, and made it more difficult for Indigenous peoples to determine their own path. The Indian Advancement Act of 1884 was an even more aggressive attempt to transform Indigenous political institutions. Under this policy, which followed the model of Canadian municipal government, traditional councils were replaced by band councils elected on an annual rather than triennial basis. In terms of land, the 1876 Indian Act laid out extensive rules for the alienation and leasing of Indian lands. A key feature was the location ticket, which lawmakers saw as an important step in putting Indians on the path away from communitarianism toward enfranchisement and private property. The legislation envisioned that reserves would be surveyed and divided into individual lots. Each lot would be assigned to individual members, heads of households, mostly men but also some widows, by the band councils, and each owner would be given a location ticket as proof of his title to that lot. To acquire a location ticket, a man needed to prove his suitability. Essentially, he had to be literate, morally upright, and debt-free. After the ticket had been issued, the owner had a probationary period of three years to prove that he was capable of behaving in a civilized way, which included improving his land according to colonial standards. If he met all the requirements, he would become officially enfranchised and would own the lot in the same manner as a white settler. 
those who held a professional degree, such as minister, lawyer, teacher, or doctor, could receive a location ticket and be enfranchised without going through a probationary period. The assumption, initially, was that Indigenous people would desire to become enfranchised, which turned out to be mostly false, since few voluntarily applied for the change in status. Subsequent amendments to the Indian Act envisioned unilateral imposition of location tickets and enfranchisement. The Indian Act was genocidal in the sense that its purpose was to eradicate Indigenous nations, first, by legally transforming Indians into non-Indians. Enfranchisement policies were designed to remove the most educated and talented people from the community, but the point was also to shrink its remaining land base by giving each enfranchised person a portion of the reserve. Historian John Tobias sums up the importance of the 1876 Indian Act by saying that it was the first piece of comprehensive legislation by which the government exercised its exclusive jurisdiction over Indians and Indian lands, and that it had as its purpose the eventual extirpation of this jurisdiction by doing away with those persons and lands that fell with the category of Indians and Indian lands. In other words, the DIA claimed to protect Indigenous people and their lands, but it actually worked to do the opposite. In the guise of promoting civilization, the Indian Act also attacked Indigenous laws related to marriage, divorce, sexuality, race relations, freedom of movement, the actions of Indigenous women, and the legal status of children born out of wedlock. It aimed at the eradication of Indigenous law, practices, leadership, and identity, and sought to create new persons in the image of idealized Euro-Canadian Christians. First Nations east of Lake Superior, toward whom this legislation was largely directed, generally rejected the Indian Act. Most opposed the Band Council system because they understood that it would make their leaders primarily accountable to the DIA. The department chose to interpret this rejection as a sign that even these communities were not yet ready to make choices that were in their own best interest and thus needed more heavy-handed guidance. But, as historian Sarah Carter notes, Indian policy in Canada was not driven by long-term planning or unified purpose. Instead, it was tentative and ad hoc, driven by official ideologies and common beliefs, and not subject to public discussion. The department was often unresponsive to warnings and appeared to do very little advanced planning, but legislation relating to First Nations had a clear direction, granting the DIA more and more authority over Indigenous people and lands. In thinking about this situation, I borrow the phrase effective inefficiency, which sociologist and lawyer Yael Berda coined to describe the colonial effectiveness of the Kafkaesque Israeli bureaucracy to subjugate Palestinians. As the department expanded rapidly during the 1870s, its power over First Nations quickly grew, with very little oversight or interest from the general public and virtually no accountability to First Nations themselves. In such circumstances, the effective inefficiency of the DIA its failure to plan for the long term and to take a firm policy direction 
Its tentative and often contradictory decision-making made it very difficult for Indigenous people to resist. For their part, DIA officials felt that Gahnawage was one of the most advanced Indigenous communities in Canada, and so they intended to showcase their assimilative tactics there. At the same time, they were concerned about its strong tradition of political independence and resistance to outside interference. They often characterized those who upheld Gahnawage law as primitive and irrationally conservative, seeing self-interested Gahnawage Hironu who broke that law as acting rationally. In their view, a core problem that required a solution, not only in Gahnawage but in all First Nations, lay with the deficiencies in, or absence of, private property. To get control and establish private property, the DIA repeatedly destabilized the authority of Gahnawage leaders and law through the 1870s. But as we shall see in this chapter, its acts generated a chaotic period of environmental destruction and economic damage, which it blamed on Gahnawage troublemakers. Wood, Law, and Race Although wood and land shortages in Gahnawage had provoked some problems during previous decades, they came to a head in the 1870s. Gahnawage had experienced significant upheaval and uncertainty due to Montreal industrialization and railway development, DIA interference, shortages of land and resources, and racial tensions. It was these concerns that led so many Gahnawage Hironu to favor moving the community elsewhere, something the Canadian government would not allow, Chapter 4. At the same time, Gahnawage Hironu experienced growing internal political problems. Within this fraught context, a touchstone debate emerged about the legal framework for cutting down trees. All interested parties, including DIA officials, Gahnawage leaders, and landowners, realized that trees were being cut faster than they could grow, and that everyone would suffer as a result. Since most Gahnawage Hirona relied to some extent on the land for food, raw materials, timber, and firewood, these shortages affected everyone. There was great disagreement about both the reason for the lack of wood and its potential solution. Already in 1855, the chiefs believed that the problem was white people who stole wood, sometimes with the help of a few Gahnawage Hronu. Chapter Epigraph. To solve the problem, the chiefs needed help in enforcing their laws, but the DIA had no wish to support either the chiefs or their laws. Instead, it attempted to strengthen its position by exhorting its Indian agent to do more. In 1873, the department constructed the incoming agent, Joseph Pinsonneau, to focus on regulating woodcutting and preventing white people from squatting on Gahnawage territory. The DIA solution to Gahnawage's problem rested in asserting its own authority and legal framework, but its own authority remained weak, whereas most Gahnawage Hirono still considered their traditional chiefs as legitimate leaders. In the winter of 1873-1874, the situation deteriorated to such an extent that the chiefs hired men to guard the trees. 
Chiefs Tayarunhyode and Odohorisu informed the DIA, now part of the Department of Interior, in the spring of 1874 that a number of people had taken hundreds of saw logs to the sawmill with the intention of selling the wood. The chiefs planned to seize the logs whenever they found proof that someone had been selling them. Without the help of a first-language English speaker, they wrote to David Laird, Minister of Interior, that Few of them had been cleared the wood or trees of their farms and had sold to the white people, and this time chopping their fuel to others' farms and selling to the said white, to whom have no ideas to sell keep for the tribe only as we intend to punish with them by ceased of their annuities money, although is not equal, to encourage of the obedience. In other words, the chiefs wished to withhold annuity payments from those who were selling wood. Instead of supporting them, Deputy Minister of the Interior Edmund Allen Meredith rebuked them, saying it was not their responsibility to end the sale of timber, but that of the Indian agent. He agreed, however, that Gahnawa Geheronu who sold it would have the amount of the sale deducted from their share of the annuity. He subsequently berated Agent Pinsano for not keeping watch over the wood of the reserve, but the agent could do very little to stop the cutting. Thus, although colonial officials recognized the importance of the chief's concerns, they refused to support proven and respected indigenous leaders in their efforts to protect their forests and people, choosing instead to rely on the Indian agent, an ineffective outsider. Gahnawage law regarding woodcutting is most clearly spelled out in the 1801 Code, Chapter 2, but it was restated and upheld by Gahnawage leaders throughout the century. Aside from active sugar bushes and a few tree species that were reserved for public uses, Gahnawage citizens could legally take down a tree anywhere on the territory. The wood was only for personal use, however, and Gahnawage Hirono were forbidden to sell it. Thus, one can envision 19th century Gahnawage as a commonly owned woodlot or a dish with one spoon, a forest commons that was to be shared by everyone under strict conditions. Like all successful historical examples of a commons, this was not a free-for-all, but a regulated space. Opponents of Gahnawage wood law tended to be land-owning, wealthier Gahnawage Hirono who sided with the DIA on this issue. I refer to them as dissidents, which is my own term. It was not used at the time. Dissidents is a slippery category and may indeed encompass people who did not see themselves as siding with the DIA on most issues, but it does tend to include those with questionable Indian status and or questionable residency or citizenship in Gahnawage. Dissidents on the wood issue understood land ownership as conferring exclusive rights to the trees on one's land. Like the DIA, they saw the Gahnawage laws as the source of the problem, but they felt powerless to change things because they themselves were in the minority. They did, however, have a powerful ally in the DIA, and the two parties often worked together to undermine Gahnawage chiefs and laws and to promote the idea that colonial laws should be in force. 
On December 20th, 1873, five dissident landowners petitioned the DIA for an Order in Council, OIC, a highly specific law that would make it illegal to cut wood on someone else's lot without permission. One of the petitioners was Mary Louise McCumber, the widow of George de Lorimier, whose family possessed much land despite the widespread view in Gahnawage that they were white people without the right to own land there. Chapter 3. The petitioners complained that under the current circumstances, they and others are subjected to much annoyance and loss by a custom which prevails in the said seigneury from any member of the tribe to cut down and remove the timber from the said farms contrary to the wishes and without the consent of the owners thereof. Aside from any actual damage this practice might cause to forests, the petitioners saw it as a serious impediment to the cultivation and improvement of Gahnawage lands and as the discouragement of agriculture generally among the Indians of the Sault St. Louis. The dissidents thus argued that Gahnawage law was an impediment to agriculture and productive land use, which they knew would please the DIA, itself deeply invested in promoting civilization through farming. Through their lawyer, M. McIver, the five dissident landowners described Gahnawage law. It has hitherto been the custom for any member of the tribe to appropriate to his own uses the timber throughout the reserve, regardless of the rights of those who, in virtue of the usual Indian title, are acknowledged owners of lots of land. McIver summarized the consequences of this promiscuous ownership and destruction of timber. Valuable trees are cut down for the most ordinary purposes and not unfrequently to gratify a spirit of revenge. The farms are denuded of wood for building, fencing, and firewood, and as a natural result, few persons are inclined to spend money or labor in improving properties always liable to such ruinous depredations. To add to the evil, threats are now held out of cutting down several valuable maple sugaries, which have hitherto been exempt from spoliation and considered to be the exclusive property of those persons on whose land they were, and it is feared that perseverance in that design will be attended with serious breaches of the peace. The dissidents and their lawyer knew that this framing would get the attention and sympathy of the DIA. They cast themselves as rational and even-keeled, surrounded by vengeful, unreasonable, destructive neighbors. In the current situation, they argued, responsible and industrious landowners such as themselves had no incentive to improve their property, which is why so much of it remained uncultivated. They stated that their primary concern was the preservation of both the trees and peaceful relations. They feared that all the trees would be felled due to defective laws and poorly behaved Gahnawage Hrono, with violence the probable result. Their portrayal of Gahnawage law is consistent with other 19th century accounts, but their interpretation of the actions and motivations of their neighbors was clearly a minority view and deeply offensive to those being described. The dissidents contended that Gahnawage laws led to conflict and discouraged agriculture. It is impossible to know whether conflict in Gahnawage was greater than in settler villages, but it is unlikely. 
The trope that Indigenous peoples are marked by unusual levels of violence and internal clashes has long been used to weaken their political interests. The dissidents also made a direct connection between the level of discord and a lack of farming. They said that Gahnawage laws accounted for the backward state of agriculture among the Indians of Sault Ste. Louis, for though many of them are anxious to cultivate their lands, they are deterred from so doing by the condition attached to the possession of them. If these laws were allowed to stay in force, they warned, the land would remain underused and friction would escalate. They asked the DIA to imagine what would happen if the entire province were subjected to such a law. The irritation and mischief caused by the circumstances described may be realized by supposing that all the inhabitants of the province held their lands burdened with a similar incident of tenure. Were it so, it is scarcely too much to say that the country would either be a wilderness, as the greater part of Sault Ste. Louis is, or the scene of lawlessness, strife, and violence. It is worth noting that dissidents made a direct association between wilderness and lawlessness, one that has been employed in colonial contexts around the world to justify indigenous dispossession. Those who wanted to engage in practices that contravened Gahnawage law, such as these dissidents, often stated that Gahnawage Hironu did not farm, which was not the case. Government officials made numerous references to their agriculture throughout the 1870s, and outside observers tended not to recognize smaller-scale, women-directed farming as agriculture. Even families that relied on income from wage labor and itinerant professions depended on locally cultivated and gathered food. In the light of the harms caused by the legal status quo, the dissidents asked the DIA to have a law passed that would protect landowners. Their lawyer quoted from the Section 37 of the 1868 Act on the Management of Indian Lands, reminding the DIA that the law authorized the governor and council to make such regulations as he deems expedient for the protection and management of the Indian lands in Canada or any part thereof, and of the timber thereon, or cut from off the said lands, whether surrendered for sale, or reserve, or set apart for the Indians. The five landowners, in other words, were asking the Canadian government to expand its jurisdiction into Gahnawage. The DIA turned down their request, saying that no new OIC was needed because the rights of landowners were already protected by the Crown Timber Act, which had been made applicable to Indian lands so that no timber can be cut except under license or by white men or by Indians on Indian lands, save when cut by an occupant of land for his own use upon the lot occupied by him and any cut without license may be dealt with as cut in trespass. But to enforce that law, the DIA believed that Gahnawage needed a cadastral survey to establish the boundary lines between its lots in a way that it could understand. Until then, it could do nothing to stop the conflict. In effect, it insisted on a legal framework that could not be enforced until a cadastral survey had been completed. In the meantime, it would not enforce existing Gahnawage laws because it did not acknowledge their validity. 
The DIA suggested that, should it be the general wish of the Iroquois owning that reserve to have it subdivided by survey into farm lots, the department would be prepared to carry it into effect. This suggestion was apparently a hint about what was needed from the dissidents before the DIA could proceed. Two months later, the department received exactly what it had requested. It was a petition from 19 Gahnawage possessors of farms and other real property therein to have a survey made and to establish division lines between the different properties. The 19 signatories included the five individuals who had launched the original petition of December 20, 1873, and the new petition was forwarded by the same lawyer, M. McIver. The DIA then asked Indian agent Joseph Pinsano to determine whether the opinion of the practitioners represented the majority view. He reported that the petitioners were in the minority. The majority was opposed to a survey that would give landowners exclusive possession of standing trees. Most had no woodlots of their own and thus would never support a position that would deprive them of fuel to heat their homes. It is important to note that the DIA was interested in Gahnawage public opinion, not because it intended to respect the wishes of inhabitants, but only because it needed to know how difficult the execution of its plans would be. Thus, in 1875, even after learning that the majority was opposed, the DIA asked Pinsano to collect information about landowners and lots in preparation for a subdivision survey. Many families refused to cooperate, with the result that Pinsano could not complete his task at that time. A few weeks later, four Gahnawage chiefs, Jarvis A. Dion, Joseph K. DeLille, Joseph T. Skye, and Thomas Asenaze, responded to the unilateral approach of the DIA with a poignant letter. Their petition lays out the objections of the majority in detail, although it is written in non-standard English, presumably without the help of a first-language English speaker. I quote it at length because I believe it gives the perspective of most Gahnawage Hironu in a relatively unmediated way. The phrasing is sometimes difficult to decipher, so I follow each section with my understanding of what it means in square brackets along with some explanatory comments afterwards. The chiefs began the letter by emphasizing that the request for a survey had come from a minority group. In a various opinions of the whole tribe and some of them nothing but wasting the interests of the tribe, we are much complaining on it, for there is quite evident in further will fall to a destitution part of our tribe. Though they were being elected us as a chiefs for maintenance and ruling to them as far as will stand the obedience as we acknowledge we had done in our duty as much as in our power even to these very days. Desires to obtain of release and to protecting to them that they were not possessed a farm or sugar bush and for using of our interests. My interpretation... The majority of the tribe believes that this small group is undermining the interests of the entire tribe and has been very vocal about this. The tribe elected us to govern our people. We have done so to the best of our abilities under the circumstances, and our priority has been to protect those who do not possess a farm or sugar bush and to protect the interests of the tribe as a whole. 
The chiefs thus explained that the request for a survey had come from a small group of people who were trying to undermine the nation for their own reasons. The chiefs presented themselves as the only legitimate leaders of Gahnawage who were acting in the interests of the entire nation, especially the many people who did not own farms or sugar bushes. They then explained Gahnawage law regarding woodcutting. As they were a certain party, they have an idea, the owners of the sugar bushes, of their own use of the maple wood, and even when Will consumed the rest of the woods and one of the tribe had been tried and convicted by the judge of La Prairie, the Act 1869. As in our general rule, if a man has sugar bush as long as he kept the maple for making a sugar, he have no privilege, for if he shall convert to a farm or choping himself or servants and selling, there shall we have rights to chop or cut down the maples of our own use the way we understand by the treaty, May 29, 1680, of Louis the Sixteenth, Six Mile Square for the Iroquois tribe. My Interpretation the small group of dissidents, owners of sugar bushes, have the idea that they can keep their maple wood for their own exclusive use even when all other wood has been cut, and one, Gahnawa Gehronu, has already been convicted by the La Prairie judge under the Act of 1869. Our general rule is that a man can have a sugar bush as long as he is actively producing sugar. If he cuts down the trees to sell the wood or converts the forest to farmland, he loses his privilege, and all community members have the right to cut the wood. We understand this rule to be supported by the Treaty of May 29, 1680 of Louis XVI regarding the six square miles of land for the Iroquois tribe. According to the chiefs, the petitioners were a few landowners who claimed an exclusive right to maple wood, even when they were not tapping the trees. The chiefs reiterated the long-standing Gahnawage legal principle that land and trees could be owned in the sense of excluding others from them only when they were used. Thus, maples could be claimed as a person's individual property only as long as they were being tapped for sugar. Chapter 2 it is also important to note that the chiefs saw the May 1680 seigneurial concession as a treaty with the French crown, now inherited by the British crown, and that this treaty had recognized their laws as applying to the lands in question. Next, the chiefs discussed their loss of fiscal independence and how it impeded their ability to govern. Since disestablished the Act 1867 and the officers resigned themselves by misunderstood of their duty, and our funds are a sheet to the crown, ever since to them that they were misdemeanors have more chance to waste of fuel because we have no power to chastise them and neither of any agent willing to prosecute them. My Interpretation since the Act of 1867, Indian agents have misunderstood their duties, and our funds have been managed by the Crown. Since then, lawbreakers in the community have been emboldened to waste wood, because we have no power to chastise them, and the agent is not willing to prosecute them. Incidents of illegal woodcutting had been on the rise since 1867, when the chief said that Canada had taken over management of their finances. Once the people knew that they no longer had either complete financial control or the full backing of the department, incidents of illegal woodcutting increased. But the chiefs also recognized that the trend had started before Confederation. 
Some of them, they were begun about 25 years ago and multiplying every year, and in this year, the greatest number ever employed of selling fuel and the parties accusing the chiefs and were the sellers of wood, but we held the peace as our own concern. If they were only obedient enough, we should live in peaceably. My interpretation. Some of these people started illegally cutting and selling wood about 25 years ago, and more people are doing it every year. This year, the greatest number ever are selling wood illegally, and those who are breaking the law are accusing the chiefs of causing the problem. But we were simply trying to keep the peace, which could be achieved if everyone obeyed the law. The writers believe that the problem of wood pilfering had begun about 25 years earlier, around 1850, but had never been more severe than now. Colonial interference in Gahnawage did not begin with Confederation. It dated from much earlier. But the chiefs here explain one concrete way in which things had worsened for them in recent years. Gahnawage Hirono were acutely aware of how little land they had left and were concerned about the real-life impacts of any land survey, legal change, or land redistribution. According to the chiefs, for they were conscience, most of the tribe, it will parpade the interests of the tribe. And if to subdivide the land or reserve, for we have only a small piece of land according to the number of the tribe, and beside, we have to pay to be surveyed of the land, and after receive the shares, some will oblige to sell, and emigrant, and nothing to take with the annuity or Indians pound. For the shares, it will containing swamps, rocky or stony grounds, and creared without fuel. As we are considered the present time some more illegal possessed of our land, and to them that same license for using in the reserve the way one understand, if we shall take these actions, all those illegal possessed, it shall be theirs in future of the seigneury, but part of the tribe shall be gone one place to another. My interpretation. We knew that if the reserves were to be subdivided, each person would have only a small piece of land, and we would have to collectively pay for the surveying of the land, and after it is completed, some would have to sell their lot and leave the community, and lose their access to their annuity. This is because many lots will contain swamps, rocky or stony grounds, and cleared land without fuel. If the minority who are currently in illegal possession of our lands are given license to continue in this way, and if the reserve is subdivided, those who are currently acting illegally will be given legal rights to lands, and many others will have to leave. Since the land was of uneven quality, a redistribution would aggravate inequities, and a new private property regime would spell the end of accessible firewood. Even if everyone were given a piece of land, many would find themselves in dire straits, with poor land and no access to wood. Add to this the high cost of the survey that would be borne by the community, and the chiefs believed these interventions were unsustainable. They wanted only for the colonial government to support them as they enforced their own laws. But if the DIA would not do this, they asked it to approve the sale of the reserve and the removal of the community to Indian Territory, Oklahoma, where they had apparently made arrangements with the Cherokee. For more on this, see Chapter 4. 
The DIA knew very well that the majority in Gahnawage opposed a cadastral survey and the imposition of colonial land law. Only a small minority ever asked for these, and information submitted by the Indian agent regularly confirmed that most people supported the position of the chiefs on this issue. But of course, the chiefs did not enjoy unqualified support, and the DIA fully intended to exploit these rifts. A number of Gahnawage Hironu even favored having the Council of Chiefs replaced by an elected band council under the Advancement Act. An 1875 petition, signed by more than a third, 190, of Gahnawage men who were obviously unhappy with their current leadership, asked for an elected council in line with the Enfranchisement Act of 1869. Historian Gerald Reed's demographic analysis of the signatories for this petition, and others, shows that opponents of the traditional chiefs were typically younger men and also tended to be landholders. Supporters of the chiefs tended to be small landholders or people without land. An important point here is that the colonial archives tell us nothing about the views of women in this case. This silence is particularly striking in light of the role that Rodinashuni women traditionally played in raising up and deposing chiefs. Of course, they still took an active political role at this time, but it is difficult for historians to access specifics about it. Reed argues that the dissatisfaction with Gahnawage leadership was related to land inequalities and resource scarcity, which is no doubt true, but it was more specifically a response to the chief's inability to effectively govern due to colonial interference or strategic indifference. An example of the latter is the DIA's repeated refusal to support the chiefs in enforcing Gahnawage law. This had the effect of damaging their credibility and creating a situation in which people would be willing to accept the band council system as the price for obtaining a functional government. The DIA also now controlled the finances and would allow chiefs to spend money only on things that it saw as priorities. For instance, they were not permitted to spend community funds to help poor families. For leaders who wished to promote economic equality among their people and to show care for the poor, this would have been both infuriating and a serious blow to their credibility. Conflicts surrounding resource and land management were closely related to questions of race and belonging. Although the Indian Act did not specify legal pathways for a non-Indian man to become a status Indian, non-Indian women legally became Indians when they married an Indian man. The DIA regularly granted permanent residence permits to non-status men who had some reason for living on the reserve acceptable to the DIA. The department was inconsistent in granting such permits, and thus white people lived in Gahnawage under many pretexts. If permits had been renewed a number of times, the DIA sometimes saw this as adequate grounds for granting the permit holder full status rights. In other cases, the courts made decisions about Gahnawage membership rights. The DIA's preferred approach was to take no action, another example of strategic indifference. The department saw evicting people as expensive and risky, whereas allowing white people to stay in place advanced the cause of civilization. In practical terms, DIA inaction promoted a porous community boundary, weakened community cohesion, and undermined the authority of Gahnawage leaders and increased the number of DIA supporters. 
Chiefs repeatedly petitioned the DIA to help them to expel white men residing there illegally and who often illegally cut and sold wood. According to the chiefs, some of these men held DIA residency permits that should never have been granted, and even those whose permits were legitimate did not pay their annual rents. Of course, white people were not the only wood poachers, but the chiefs believed that they had set a precedent, which Kahnawage Hironu had followed when it became clear that they themselves could not enforce the laws. Throughout the 1870s, the DIA made several half-hearted attempts at compiling a membership list for Gahnawage, as well as lists of white people who lived there illegally. The department did not even have a complete list of permit holders, nor did it keep accounting books that would inform it as to whether a permit holder had paid rent. DIA officials often instructed the Indian agent to evict white men or to collect rent from them, knowing that he would not be able to do it. The inability of Gahnawage leaders to enforce their own citizenship or residency laws led some Gahnawage Hironu to great frustration and vigilante justice. Indian agent Georges Cherrier reported that the first barn fires occurred in 1865 when two barns belonging to people who were seen as white went up in flames. The most high profile of such attacks came in 1878 when someone torched a barn belonging to Ozias Malush, a Gahnawage resident considered by many to be white. He died trying to save his animals. The Montreal Daily Witness reported that, No doubt is entertained, but this is the work of an incendiary, as this is the fourth attempt to fire the village within a short time. It is believed that these attempts are the outcome of animosities which exist between the Indians and the French Canadians. The deceased was 48 years of age and leaves a wife and family. He was an industrious man and owned considerable property in the village. The following year saw five more barn fires and the arson continued into the next decade. It is clear that in the context of mounting colonial interference, a number of concerns and frustrations were building over the 1870s, all of which resulted in instability and violence. The Order in Council of 1876 In November 1875, Degano Nowehun Alexander Delormier wrote to the DIA on behalf of a number of respectable owners of sugar bushes. They feared that people would cut maple trees on their lands that winter. The parents of Degarno Noehun, George Delormier, and Mary Louise McCumber had been part of a number of controversies over the previous decade, and most Gahnawagehronu saw them as white. The DIA was inconsistent in its stance. Chapters 3 and 4, Degarno Noehun and other members of his family continued to hold considerable land in Gahnawage including large and valuable sugar bushes. These were the focus of concern for Deganunowehu and his fellow dissidents. Up to this day, only a few young men have dared to chop several trees in these bushes. This winter, I have reasons to fear that some serious trouble will take place among them with regard to the maple trees. Such trees, according to the usages here, are not allowed to be cut down only by those who are actually in possession of them for their own private use, but now the ill-disposed parties, or I may say those who have sold illegally their own portion to the white people, have come to the conclusion of chopping these maple trees to the great detriment of the actual owners who wisely have had the good sense to preserve them. 
It is not clear whether Degano Nohehu intended to tap the maples or fell them, but in either case, he believed that no one else had the right to log in his sugar bush. According to his interpretation of Gahnawage law, maples could be cut only by the owners of the land on which they grew, and then solely for their own private use. He asked the government for an order in council, OIC, to protect landowners' wood and to preserve peace in the community. Degonunowehu's interpretation, however, was not in line with Gahnawage law as it had been expressed to that point. Maples that were used for sugar production were not to be cut by people who did not own the lot, but what might ensue if the owners themselves did so was not at all clear. Did it mean that others could help themselves as well? Perhaps Gahnawage had never faced this particular situation before. Indian agent Pinsano repeated Deganonowehu's narrative, adding that the troublemakers were those who had already felled their own trees to sell the wood illegally, whereas the petitioning landowners wished to preserve theirs. This framing took advantage of the colonial tropes of indigenous people as savage, whereas these wealthier, whiter individuals could be shown as responsible and civilized. But, Pinsano claimed, even they would cut down their maples if the Privy Council did not issue a new OIC to protect the sugar bushes. His letter ended with a plea. For the good of the Indian, please intervene to protect the maples. The chiefs also wished to safeguard the maple trees, but their reasoning was very different from that of Pinsano and the petitioners. Their concern was that the owners of the sugar bushes were cutting the maples themselves and planned to take more. In 1874, they had asked the department to stop the practice. In our opinion, the owners of certain sugar bushes should in future be forbidden to chop wood or fuel off the said bushes unless the old deed shall be altered. What the chiefs meant by old deed is unclear, but perhaps they believed that this rule was contained in the original 1680 seigneurial grants. The DIA also opposed the cutting of maples, but it did so because the sugar bushes were valuable and productive, and because one of its goals was to further the economic development of indigenous communities. Thus, all parties agreed that sugar bushes should be preserved, but they differed on how to achieve it. Wasting little time, the DIA acted in accordance with the wishes of the dissidents, ignoring the requests of the chiefs and the majority. On December 9, 1875, it had prominent Lachine industrialist Thomas A. Dawes deputed to enforce Section 22 of the 1868 Act providing for the organization of the Department of the Secretary of State of Canada and for the management of Indian and ordnance lands, prosecuting anyone cutting or removing wood, timber, stone, or soil from the reserve. But three weeks later, after apparently finding that the 1868 Act was not adequate, the government issued an OIC for the protection from pillage of timber on lands occupied by Indians on the Indian Reserve at Kaknawaga. The order stipulated, 1. No timber shall be cut from off any portion of the Indian lands known as the Kaknawaga Reserve, occupied by individual members of the band, excepting such as may be required by the occupants of such lands for their own use on the premises. 2. 
Any infraction of the foregoing regulation shall subject the parties convicted thereof to a forfeiture of the timber cut and to a fine of not less than twenty or more than two hundred dollars for each such offense. 3. Any timber forfeited under the preceding regulations shall be handed over to the occupant of the land from which it was taken and the amount of the fine paid shall be carried to the credit of the funds of the band. Section 22 of the 1868 Act prohibited the removal of wood, stone, and soil from reserves, but it did not specify who owned the wood when it remained on the reserve. This OIC, by contrast, was intended for Gahnawage only. Under its terms, trees belonged to the owner of the land on which they grew, and only the owner was permitted to cut them down or to authorize another person to do so. Interestingly, the OIC made no mention of maples, which were supposedly the reason for its existence. Copies were sent to Agent Pinsonot, one for each of the chiefs and one to hang on the church door. Alarmed by this development, the chiefs asked to speak to the DIA superintendent general in person, but he refused to see them. The OIC was drafted without consulting Gahnawage chiefs and was, as a result, poorly considered. The chiefs contacted the department with worries of its dire consequences that many Gahnawage Hironu would no longer have access to firewood. So DIA Deputy Superintendent General Lawrence Van Kugnet asked Agent Pinsonot if the common areas of the reserve had enough wood to provide for everyone who did not own a woodlot. Pinsonot assured him that they did and that the supply would last for some years. Only the day before, Thomas Dawes had apprised the DIA of wood shortages in Gahnawage and had asked for clarification of the law concerning wood ownership. It seems, he wrote, there is a growing scarcity of timber on the reserve and a consequent quarreling about it. I would like to know if they possess the timber in common or if any number of them having selected certain portions of land are to have the sole use of the timber on those particular portions to the exclusion of the rest. Dawes had a case before him involving a Gahnawa Gehronu who had cut wood to build a roof on his outbuilding, whereupon the Gahnawa Gehronu who owned the property on which the trees were felled took possession of the logs. Dawes had no idea of how to handle the matter, which is why he asked the DIA for guidance. Van Kugnet sent Dawes a copy of the OIC and, echoing the words of Agent Pinsonot, assured him that, as regards such Indians, have not enough wood on the land they occupy for their domestic use. There is sufficient wood for them on the portion of the reserve held in common by the band. In February 1876, after having learned about the OIC, Gahnawage chiefs asked the DIA to repeal it. They argue that Gahnawage law had always stipulated that all wood, except maples, could be cut anywhere on the territory. They had heard with astonishment and grief that a certain party would have petitioned to the government of Ottawa and by their instigation a measure would have been adopted in council that an Indian would no more have right to cut any timber upon the property of another, that the occupant would henceforth have the sole benefit and whoever would infringe the law would incur an enormous penalty. Honorable gentlemen, if it is by pure movement of the government 
We do not blame him in issuing a such an order, the OIC. We like to give him credit that he done is for the greatest benefit of the tribe, but unfortunately, he was not aware of the fatal consequences that would have resulted the adoption of such measure and the real standing of the domain, because our usages and habits of cutting wood wherever we find it, accepting nevertheless the maple date of time immemorial. This carefully worded protest gave the DIA the benefit of the doubt, even as it explained in no uncertain terms that the OIC contradicted Gahnawage law. Furthermore, the chiefs argued that the OIC had found favor with only about one-fifth of the population and that many of these people gained access to Gahnawage land under dubious circumstances. Their main point, however, was that regardless of who owned the land, the trees belonged to everyone. A few weeks later, after Chiefs Tayuro Hyode, Joseph Skye, and Sadegayandu, Louis Bova, traveled to Ottawa to make their case in person, Vancunet made an exception to the OIC. For the rest of that winter only, Gahnawa Gehrono would be allowed to cut wood as before, though not maples, but only with the written permission of the landowner. Van Kugnet also suggested that they abandon their long-established habit of cutting wood in the winter and do it during the summer instead. This, according to Van Kugnet, would give the wood time to dry before use, a textbook example of a DIA official believing he had useful advice to offer Indigenous people about how to live on the land. Meanwhile, Dawes was working with Chief Tayorun Hyode to apprehend those who were illegally cutting down trees. As with previous cases, he had difficulty in getting convictions unless the perpetrators declared themselves guilty. Most of his cases were dismissed, but the court expenses were paid from Gahnawage funds. Gahnawage, in other words, was required to pay for the ineffective enforcement of the OIC. In early February, Dawes asked the DIA to clarify its position on wood and property, on which he was again sent a copy of the OIC along with a copy of the letter to Pinsano, stating that exceptions would be made this year only. Evidently, everyone involved was now greatly confused as to whether the old or the new rules were in effect, and it was not at all clear that breaking any of them would result in serious negative consequences. The Enclosure Rush of 1876 to 1877 The Enclosure Rush of 1876 to 1877 Since it was unclear which laws now applied to Gunawage land and resources, and since no one seemed capable of enforcing them, people rushed to cut down trees and enclose land with fences. I have employed my own term, the enclosure rush, to describe this period. Although Gahnawa Gehronu were no longer sure whether woodcutting was governed by their own law or that of Canada, they sensed that the latter would prevail and acted accordingly. They perceived that the DIA, by way of its OIC, would recognize the land rights only of those who had individual claims on particular parcels and that little time remained to lay claim to whatever parcels were not yet owned. The traditional way to legally claim a lot was to clear and cultivate it. Now, a number of Gahnawa Gehronu realized that the DIA would look favorably on their claim if they also built a fence around it. 
The chiefs were disturbed about the trend of building fences for the express purpose of claiming land and exclusive rights to trees. Those attempting to bolster their claim to a lot that they already held were building fences, but so were those who wished to claim a new lot. Gahnawa Geheronu recognized that the DIA and its local officials placed great stock in fences as signifiers of ownership. Dawes reported the following in February 1877. It seems some of the Indians have been more careful of their property than others and have fenced in portions of the reserve for their own use, part of which is under cultivation and part in wood, the latter they wish to keep to use as fuel. Those who have not been so careful are now encroaching on the others and cutting down this wood for their own use. They say the whole reserve is owned in common, and they have a right to cut down where and when they please, provided they only use for domestic purposes such as fuel, etc., etc. Will you kindly let me know if those who have fenced in those portions of the land have a right to prevent other Indians from entering upon it and taking away the timber? In previous years, DIA officials have described wood conflicts in similar terms but had not mentioned fences. Now their presence appeared to bolster, in the eyes of Dawes, an individual's exclusive claim to a lot and its trees. As for his questions regarding fences, the department did not answer directly. A letter from Van Kugne emphasized that the rules from the year before were still in force, that only those who possessed written permission from landowners might cut wood on their land. Gahnawage had no precedent for claiming land and wood by fencing it, but DIA action and inaction encouraged its residents to adopt the practice. In 1881, the chiefs confirmed that since 1876, all fences built to enclose lots were for the sole purpose of depriving the community of the wood therefrom. The most prominent fencing case of the enclosure rush involved part of the lucrative quarry lands in Gahnawage. Commercial quarrying had been underway since at least 1822, but the enlargement of the Lachine Canal prompted a boom during the 1870s, and in 1876, between 40 and 50 Gahnawage men earned their living in the quarries. That spring, the chiefs leased a portion of the quarry lands to a firm named McNamee, Gaherty, and Fréchette, with the approval of the DIA. A Gahnawage man named Ohyungodu, Angus Jacob, claimed that the lot in question was his, that the chiefs had leased it without his permission, and announced that he intended to sue them for damages. The chiefs believed that he had enclosed the land with a makeshift fence only after he knew that it would be leased. According to Agent Pinsono, Ohyungohtu has made some improvements on it to the value of $20 to $25. Last year, he planted on different places of the quarry on an extent of a quarter of an acre, and he claims the sum of $50 for the extent of four acres of uncultivated land. Pinsono recounted that Ohyungohtu had fenced about five acres next to the quarry and cultivated a portion of it for the first time harvesting only half a bushel of corn. According to Pinsano and the chiefs, Ohyungotu probably knew that the lot was about to be leased and did what he could to claim it and raise its value. Having cultivated and fenced the lot, Ohyungotu met both the Gahnawage standard for claiming land, clearing and planting, and one of the most important colonial standards, 
enclosing with a fence. His efforts at farming also bolstered his claim in the eyes of the department because the lot would be classified as improved. The chiefs rejected his claim and refused to meet his demands, but Pinsano suggested that it might be well to pay him for his improvements in order to prevent any trouble with him. Van Kugnet agreed, asking Pinsano to convince the chiefs of the propriety of compensating Ohiungotu for his improvements. However, the chiefs refused to do so, probably because they understood that paying compensation would simply generate more such cases. Thus, Ohiungotu made good on his threat, suing the chiefs for $500 in damages. Neither Pinsano nor Chief Tayuragaru thought the lot was worth more than $25. In Pinsano's opinion, Ohiungotu was a lazy troublemaker who wanted money for nothing. The chiefs offered to pay Ohiungotu $50 to drop the suit, but he refused, holding out for a victory in court. When it seemed that he would prevail, a few others took their cue from him and appropriated portions of quarry land that spring. Pinsano felt that they were simply opportunists who had no right whatsoever to the land. He advised that they'd be dispossessed immediately, especially considering the economic importance of quarry wages and royalties to the community. While Pinsano made judgments on the character of the men and the economic impact of their actions, Van Kugnet wanted to know whether Ohiungotu had appropriated the land before or after McNamee, Gaherty, and Frechette signed the lease. In his view, enclosing a piece of common land was illegal only if it had already been leased. The chiefs claimed to have strong proof that Ohiungotu had illegally appropriated the land. According to them, as soon as he heard of their intent to lease it, he encircled the lot with a crude fence of branches. They insisted that the area was not cultivable and that the sole purpose of his quarter acre of planting was to stake his claim. In the days before the trial, they asked the DIA to take the case more seriously as they were very concerned about the precedent it would set. On September 19, 1877, the court dismissed the action for unknown reasons. However, Gahnawage was still on the hook for more than $200 in legal fees. Similar enclosures continued after the case was concluded, but Ohiungotun's failure to win meant that the chief's worst fears were not realized in this instance. In the fall of 1876, while the Ohiungotun case was yet before the court, the chiefs petitioned the DIA to have Agent Pinsano replaced. They stated that he is the author of the action taken by Ohiungotu in appropriating the quarry lot, which they yet feared may prove fatal to us. Unable to discover a single good act in Pinsano's tenure, they informed the department that we have dropped him and no longer consider him our agent. Nor had he done enough to ensure that Gahnawageronu men were hired at the quarry. They warned the DIA that if nothing were done, it was likely that someone will make him pass a hard time. The chiefs also complained of his defective education, inability to speak either English or Gonyotgeha, use of extortion in the quarries, plying women with liquor to take advantage of them, and letting laden barges leave without having measured the stone. On the final point, the chief suggested that Pinsano was not sufficiently interested 
whereas a Gahnawagehronu stone measurer, being interested, would take more care. The agent had already been warned by the DIA that his performance was unsatisfactory, and this was the final straw. Dismissed in February 1877, Pinsonneau was replaced by Georges Cherrier. Cherrier received a 10-point list on how to do his job, the first of which read, 1. All trespasses should be prevented upon the lands of the Kaknawaga Indians, whether the same consists in the appropriation by others than members of the band of locations thereon, or by the removal therefrom of wood, stone, or other materials without the written authority of the Superintendent General of Indian Affairs, being first had and obtained. You will therefore act with promptitude and energy in stopping any attempt at the same and in punishing the trespassers in the manner provided by law. With reference to the wood, timber, stone, sand, or other material on the reserve, members of the band have only the right to appropriate such of the same as is held in common to their own use for domestic purposes, but they have no right to sell it, nor can they take any valuables of the above or other kinds for domestic use from lands other than their own locations, occupied by individual members of the band without the written consent of the occupant, countersigned by you as agent, and no sugar maples may be cut for any purpose whatever by occupants or others. These paragraphs are a good summary of the department's position on resource use in Gahnawage at this time and are restatements of the Indian Act and the 1876 OIC in regard to wood, stone, and soil. As Cherrier began his tenure in February, the height of woodcutting season, he was immediately faced with complaints of illegal woodcutting. His first letters indicate a steep learning curve, and we observe his further role below. DIA Interventions, 1878-1883 The enclosure rush had largely ended by 1878, but conflicts over land continued since it was still unclear what law was in force. The DIA approach was sometimes overbearing and sometimes hesitant, but generally inconsistent. Once the weather turned cold in 1878, 87 Gahnawa petitioned the department, complaining about the consequences of the OIC and its approach to solving the land and wood problem. As they explained, The proprietors of woodlands have decided to no longer allow us to cut wood on their lots, contrary to our laws existing till about two years ago, when the government passed an order in council that henceforth the proprietors of wooded lands should alone have the benefit of cutting wood, and this in spite of the protestation of the whole nation. At present, the majority find themselves deprived of this article so useful to a family as there is no reservation belonging in common, all being appropriated by enclosing parts with sorts of fences or even branches in places where there is small wood. The last sentence suggests that most common land outside the village and common pasture was now claimed by individuals and enclosed by fences, often only with flimsy structures made from small branches. It is also significant that the petitioners were no longer asking for the OIC to be overturned, but were requesting simply 
that every Indian shall have wood for his own use, otherwise great troubles may be anticipated. By this time, they knew that the DIA would not respect Gahnawage law, but since the OIC had deprived them of access to free wood, they asked the DIA to find an alternative solution. No response to the petition is included in the archival file. The five years following the enclosure rush can be seen as a period of chaotic adjustment in the sense that Gahnawa Gehronu were testing the boundaries of the DIA's newly imposed vision of land management. The department also found itself in unfamiliar waters. It was operating rather tentatively under the recently passed Indian Act of 1876 and was attempting to impose its will on Gahnawage while maintaining a kind of status quo within the community. In a great many cases related to land, however, the DIA found that the path of least resistance was the path of inaction. If it could avoid making a difficult decision, it usually would, a course that often simply exacerbated the problem. At other times, it made strong and unpopular decisions. It is virtually impossible to discern pattern or logics in the DIA response during this period, but the following cases illustrate the many ways that it chose to intervene, or not, in Gahnawage land conflicts. Cases of Land Appropriation and Woodcutting, 1878 Although most land outside the village was now enclosed, some people continued to appropriate land in the old way. During the spring of 1878, a man named Taretane, Tom Jacob, took and plowed a piece of land claimed by a man named Dewanitaza, Tom 20 months. Dewanitaza claimed that he had owned the land for 10 years, and this statement, along with Agent Cherrier's intervention, ensured that the department found in his favor. The key factor for the department was that Dewanitaza was there first, whereas according to Gahnawage law, his claim would have been legitimate only if he had recently worked the land. If it lay fallow for longer than three years, Darehdane would have been well within his rights to take and use it. Although we do not know whether the land had lain fallow for three years, such cases showed Gahnawa Gehronu that their law and the authority of the chiefs now counted for very little. Nevertheless, many Gahnawa Gehronu also continued to cut wood according to Gahnawage law. Cherrier had been instructed to protect sugar maples under all circumstances, but most Gahnawagehronu saw nothing wrong with cutting maples that were not being tapped. Cherrier was even directed to stop people from felling maples on their own land, although there was no law to that effect anywhere. In January 1878, he confronted some Gahnawagehronu after he noticed loads of green maple logs piled near their dwellings, but they simply laughed at him. For unknown reasons, he did not lay charges. The following winter, he informed the department that many Gahnawagehronu now burned maple wood to heat their homes and that he was ready to lay charges against Garhayandu, Matthew Jocks, for having cut down 12 maples on his own land. When Cherrier asked the DIA where he could find the law under which he could charge Garhayandu, Van Kugnet sent him a copy of the 1876 OIC and a copy of a letter to the previous agent in which he forbade the cutting of maples. 
Van Kugnet insisted that after reading these, Cherrier would perceive that it is strictly forbidden that maples shall be cut down or removed from the reserve. But this was hardly accurate. As noted above, the OIC did not refer to maples, and a DIA letter to an agent did not have the force of law. As in many cases at this time, the DIA hoped that by strongly insisting on a certain course of action, it would convince Kahnawa Gehronu that there were laws to that effect. The Case of Sagoraya Dakwa Other Gahnawa Gehronu tested the new rules by taking actions that were illegal under Gahnawa law, but would seem to be legal under the Indian Act. Sagoraya Tahqua, a former chief, claimed and fenced a piece of land along the Primo Road in October 1878, but then did nothing with it. Agent Cherrier, perhaps, influenced by Gahnawa Gehronu's sense of injustice concerning someone who claimed land without using it, wrote the department that Sagorayan Takwa's actions were unfair because they deprived poor people of firewood. Surprisingly, the DIA agreed and asked Cherrier to remove him from the lot. This case is another example in which the DIA did not follow its own legislation. There was no clear Canadian legal reason, for example, why Sagorayan Takwa could not appropriate a piece of common land by enclosing it. Several cases from previous years indicated that, as long as his rights were not contested by someone else, the DIA would have recognized his claim. In his case, however, the agent's recommendation regarding Wood took precedence. There seems to have been no way that anyone could have predicted this outcome for Sagorayantakwa. The case of Tirehta and Degayunwage. The DIA was remarkably unpredictable in its responses to cases, sometimes making snap pronouncements and sometimes leaving difficult decisions for the chiefs to handle. One example of the latter came before James P. Dawes in 1879. Dawes, a Lachine industrialist and nephew of the Thomas A. Dawes, who appeared earlier in this chapter, had only recently been deputed by the DIA to arbitrate land and wood disputes in Gahnawage. In this case, two men, Tirehta, Peter Diom, and Degayunwage, Louis Cano, claimed the same piece of land. Tirehta, the occupant at the time, had Degayunwage arrested for cutting wood on it. In light of their actions in other cases, neither appears to have been a regular DIA supporter. Both opposed DIA interventions in different ways at different times. Agent Cherrier felt that Tireta was the rightful owner because he had a notarized deed that proved ownership since 1864. Degayunwage, however, used witness accounts to establish that the lot belonged to him. In fact, people had often asked him for permission to fell trees there. Dawes appealed to the DIA for guidance, but it simply referred the problematic decision to the Gahnawage Council of Chiefs. In such cases, the department perceived that whatever decision it might make would inevitably turn a large segment of the community against it. So it handed over responsibility to the chiefs. In doing so, it put them in the impossible position of exercising authority only in cases that were destined to damage their standing in Gahnawage. Of course, the DIA could simply have removed the chiefs, but it often chose to exert its power in indirect ways, 
probably because it feared the consequences if Kahnawa Gehronu rose up in opposition. The chiefs decided in favor of Degayunwage, the man with many witnesses, and against Tirehta, the man with the deed. Cherier, incensed because they had rejected the party who possessed a contract of sale, thought their decision was due to Tirehta's reputation as a wood plunderer. The chiefs did describe him as a well-known plunderer, fameux devastateur, of the forests and referred to the aged Indian agent, the poor G.E. Cherrier, as easily dazzled by old documents. In the end, the department approved the council's decision. As justification, it pointed out that according to Tureta's deed of sale, the land had been sold by a Ganesadage Hrono, Ganyonkehaga from Ganesadage, which made the deed invalid. Had the circumstances been different, the DIA would probably have ignored such a technicality. The case of Sorihowane. In the fall of 1881, a Gahnawa Gehronu named Sorihowane, Louis Leclerc, wrote to Vancouver asking for protection. He had recently cleared and cultivated a portion of the Grand Park, a wetland area on the western side of the reserve today known as the Big Fence, which the chiefs were now demanding that he relinquish. As he explained, he and his large family were so poor that they would starve if the land were taken from them. He could produce four witnesses who would attest that it had been forested and that he himself cleared and cultivated it. As the case unfolded, it became clear that the chiefs opposed Sorihowane's claim only because he already owned a much larger lot. They offered him $50 to compensate him for his family's move to the other lot and allowed him to sow the land the following summer since he had already plowed it. Sorihowane accepted this arrangement and also agreed to plant the lot in hay before leaving. Vancunet accepted the judgment of the chiefs in part because they compensated Sorihowane for his improvements. In making his claim, Sorihowane seemed particularly adept at navigating both Gahnawage and DIA legal norms. When he wrote to Vancouver about clearing the land, he was appealing to the colonial legal right to be compensated for improvements made. His claim in terms of Gahnawage law, however, was based on the legal principle that unused land could be claimed by anyone who is willing to work it. Chapter 2. The chiefs did not dispute this right, but they overruled his claim because he already possessed another lot. This was based on the legal principle that individuals could not claim more land than they could work. The case of Sorihowane reveals that both Gahnawage and Canadian legal norms were at play, and that Gahnawage Hronu had to find a way to navigate both. The case of Ajanota. Another incident involving land title in the Grand Park area occurred in the spring of 1883, when the DIA was asked for its opinion on a Lachine court case involving Gahnawage. A 27-year-old Gahnawage Hironu named Ajanota, Michel Thomas, who had occupied a piece of land for four years, apparently without any previous incidents, brought a legal action against three Gahnawage Hironu who cut wood there. Judge J.P. Davies wanted the department's opinion before delivering his verdict on the matter, a request that Agent Cherrier relayed to Vancunet. 
A DIA official then asked Sherrier if Kahnawage chiefs had ever officially located a Janota, assigned him the lot, and the chiefs subsequently passed a resolution stating that they had never permitted a Janota to establish himself on the land in question and that it remained part of the nation's public lands. In light of Gahnawage law until that time, this resolution suggests either that the chiefs had now adapted a more static view of public lands or that Ajanota had not adequately proven his claim by clearing and cultivating the land. In line with the wishes of the chiefs, the DIA advised that Ajanota had no valid claim to the land. As in the case of Shorihowane, the department agreed with the chiefs, but not for the same reasons. For the chiefs, the land was part of the common, probably not the village common, but the Grand Park forested area on the western side of the territory. And perhaps Ajanota had not claimed it in the customary way by clearing and cultivating it. For its part, the DIA wanted to know whether he possessed legal title according to its own standards, and since he had no documentation to prove his ownership, it agreed that he had no right to stop others from cutting wood there. Two years later, the 1885 Wallbank survey listed him as owning no land. The case of Dehouan Gardaquan and Edouard de Blois in several instances, DIA officials consulted with the Department of Justice regarding the application of the Indian Act. One such case in 1877, a year after the Indian Act came into force, involved a Gahnawage Hirono named Dehouan Garakwa, Michael DeLille, who leased out his farm for two years to a French-Canadian named Edouard de Blois in exchange for a loan of $200. According to their contract, de Blois could sell the farm if Deho Wangaraqua failed to repay his loan by the end of the two years. A merchant who specialized in glass beads, de Blois had lived in Gahnawage for most of his 44 years. He held deeds for about 15 acres of cleared land and 36 acres of wooded land, including a sugar bush. His residency permit had been issued in 1874 because he was married to a Gahnawagerono named Zawanozerillo, Catherine de Parois. When the two years were up and Deho Wangaraqua defaulted on the loan, de Blois sold the farm to a Gahnawagerono named Aguiro Dunguas, Tom Phillips. Deho Wangaraqua believed that this was illegal, so he hired a lawyer to bring his case to the attention of the DIA. De Blois did not have the right to own land on the reserve, but the contract was in the name of his wife, Zawa Nozerillo. When the DIA asked the Department of Justice for advice, one of its law clerks stated that, according to Section 3 of the 1876 Indian Act, Zawa Nozerillo had ceased to be an Indian when she married De Blois. Since Section 66 of the Indian Act also forbade any person, non-Indian, from taking security from an Indian or offering anything resembling a mortgage to an Indian, the original agreement between De Blois and Dehongwangaraqua was illegal. In other words, neither De Blois nor Zawanozerio were classified as Indians, and thus neither had the right to own Gahnawage land or to take property from an Indian who had defaulted on a loan. 
The clerk suggested that the farm should revert to Deho Wangaraqua and that he should pay de Blois what he owed. But the DIA took no action. The land remained in the hands of Aguiron Doguas, and the problem did not go away. Deho Wangaraqua complained again in 1879. This time, aside from arguing that de Blois had no right to sell the farm, he added that it was worth nearly three times more than de Blois's selling price. De Blois defended himself, saying that according to his contract with Deho Wankaraqua, the land would become his if the loan were not repaid in two years, and that his occupation permit gave him the right to own land in Gahnawage. He suggested that Deho Wankaraqua was pursuing the malicious strategy of deliberately defaulting on the loan and that he was an alcoholic who drank away all of his money. Van Cugnet informed Cherrier that de Blois' permit did not allow for land ownership and instructed the agent to dispossess him on that basis. However, after Cherrier reminded Van Cugnet that de Blois had played an important role in the community, without specifying what that meant, the matter was dropped. The DIA did not acknowledge Aguiron Doguas, the current occupant, as the legitimate owner of the lot, but it recognized that he had paid de Blois and was in possession of the bill of sale. Thus, when de Wangaraqua offered Aguiron Doguas $280 to get his land back, the department advised him to accept it. This is a fine example of the DIA attempting to resolve conflicts through compromises that had little to do with the law. According to the Indian Act, all the transactions in question were illegal, and the farm should simply have reverted to Deho Wagaraqua. But instead of insisting on that course, the department attempted to find a compromise that would resolve a specific difficulty without stirring up any larger problems. The case of Léon Jasson versus Degayunwage. In many cases that involved white settlers illegally occupying land in Gahnawage, the DIA chose to do nothing. One such case was reported by Agent Cherrier in the winter of 1880-1881, when land-poor Gahnawage Hironu spent several days felling about 300 maples and other trees on land claimed by a French-Canadian named Léon Jasson. Jasson had a residency permit from the DIA, which did not include the right to own land. But like many others in his position, he had claimed or purchased it anyway and had come to see himself as a Gahnawagehronu with land rights. When he tried to stop the woodcutters, they threatened him with their axes. Cherrier, who supported Jasson's cause, did not mention in his correspondence with the DIA that Jasson and his wife, Lumina Mallet were not Gahnawagehronu. He later claimed they were. He said only that they were among those who wanted to preserve their wood and had always set a good example to the Indians. Cherrier identified the leader of the woodcutters as Sat de Gayandu, one of the chiefs who had traveled to Ottawa in 1876 to protest the OIC. Confusingly, the department instructed Cherrier to warn all Gahnawagehronu that lawbreakers would be prosecuted while also informing him that the Jessons were French Canadians who had no right to wood on the reserve. In response to Cherrier's reports of widespread maple cutting the previous winter, and specifically to the pleas of the Jesson family, 
The DIA had an order in council on maple cutting passed in the summer of 1881. The department had long claimed that the provisions of the Indian Act, along with the 1876 OIC forbidding the cutting of wood on another's land, were adequate protection for landowners. But this was obviously not the case. The new OIC specifically targeted maple cutting, stating that no Indian or other person may cut, carry away, or remove any hard or sugar maple tree or sapling without the consent of the Indian agent. The OIC did not differentiate between maples growing on private land and those on common land. It may seem surprising that a government dedicated to the implementation of private property rights would so severely restrict the rights of landowners, but it makes sense in light of the department's inability to use existing legislation to press charges against woodcutters. In the fall of 1881, Léon Jasson had de arrested and charged with trespassing and taking wood without permission. He may have chosen this course because the DIA had not ruled in his favor earlier that year. The Lachine magistrates found de guilty and sentenced him to prison, but he appealed to the court of Queen's Bench, where the ruling was overturned. The magistrates ruled that he could not be condemned because Léon Jasson did not have a location ticket and therefore had no legal title or right to occupy the lands upon which the pretended offense recited in said conviction was committed. Following this unfavorable decision, Jasson asked the DIA for a location ticket to have the trees on his land protected in the short term and to have his considerable legal expenses covered by banned funds. Quoting the Superior Court's verdict that he had no legal title to the land, he asserted that this was unjust. His title was beyond dispute, if not legally at least by implication, like that of all the other occupants in good faith. Jasson also cited Section 28 of the 1880 Indian Act, which prohibited trespassing on the land of anyone who possessed a title of occupation or is otherwise recognized by the department as occupant of such land. Clearly, this clause could include landholders who did not possess a location ticket. If the judgment of the Superior Court were to be accepted, Jasson warned no Indian at Kaknawaga would have the right to protect land occupied by him against the trespassing of another, whilst it is a fact that no ticket of occupation, location ticket, has been issued at any time for the Kaknawaga Reserve. Jasson's letter did not mention that he was a non-Indian with a residency permit, a status that should have precluded him from owning land in Gahnawage. When the DIA asked the Department of Justice if the court decision could be appealed in a higher court, it was informed that judgments rendered by the Court of Queen's Bench could not be appealed. Léon Jasson had a number of enemies in Gahnawage, a fact that was probably not unrelated to his irregular land ownership and frequent legal actions against neighbors. In the five years preceding this case, he had prosecuted four different Gahnawage men more than 20 times, and he won every time. In each case, the men were fined, but were unable to pay, so the costs were covered by the funds of the band. This meant that whenever someone was arrested for taking wood, the community was collectively punished. 
Jassin employed the trope of the lawless savage when he warned that the precedent set by his lost case would further embolden Gahnawage Hrono to help themselves to wood wherever they pleased and that the primary victims would be innocent landowners like himself. The DIA seemed to have been unaware that Jassin was a non-Indian with a residency permit, and he spoke about himself as if he had the same rights as Gahnawage Hrono. Jassan was not alone in warning the DIA about what might happen if Kahnawa Gehrono were not stopped from cutting wood on others' land. Cherie forwarded letters to the DIA from two other principal members of the band in November 1881. The two men, Gorunhyuk Dadje, Jean-Baptiste Jacques, and Konatohare, Thomas Patton, submitted a statement to the effect that they owned the land by uncontestable titles on which they had been growing some small trees since the existence of our new laws. This statement implies that they would not have tried to grow trees had it not been for the 1876 and 1881 orders in council. They complained that certain individuals were cutting their trees, the same people who sold and devastated whole forests. They asked for the application of the Indian Act, Section 17, which specified the punishment for Indians who trespassed. Both of these men were dismayed about the precedent set by the Court of Queen's Bench ruling on Léon Gesson, since it had been based on his lack of a location ticket. Because the idea of a location ticket was new and none had been issued in Gahnawage so far, they feared that they would be unable to protect trees on land they claimed. By this time, the DIA had realized that the OICs would not be effective without a comprehensive land survey. Thus, it did not address the immediate fears of these landowners, focusing its energy instead on having the land surveyed. Chapter 6 The case of Odirunyadu and Tohondu versus Harhodogwas DIA attempts to remake land ownership and impose its own law caused unforeseen problems that were difficult to solve and very confusing for the people involved. One 1878 case that illustrates this point is when two men named Odzerunyadu, Peter Jacob, and Tohondu blocked the road leading to the farm of Hardhodogwas, Angus Deer. As a result, Hardhodogwas could not work his land. He claimed he had been using the road for 25 years. Both the chiefs and the DIA agreed that the blockade should come down, but the DIA believed that it could not legally enforce this view. In its opinion, as the chiefs of Gahnawage had not passed a bylaw on the matter, there was no way to make the men dismantle their barricade. This was an early DIA reference to the need for bylaws, which is the language of the 1876 Indian Act. However, the act refers to the bylaws passed by a band council, and Gahnawage would not have this form of government until a decade later. Thus, since the DIA was not particularly interested in addressing individual problems such as this roadblock, Gahnawage Hironu had few legal options in resolving such problems as long as they did not have the form of government specified by the Indian Act. Nevertheless, despite the absence of any law to that effect, Cherier was instructed to order removal of the barricade. Archival documents do not provide the end of the story. Cases Showing the Influence of the Indian Agent 
Several of the cases discussed above show how influential the Indian agent could be in determining DIA decisions. The outcome of many cases could be greatly shaped by the way the agent presented them to the department. A case to demonstrate this point arose in November 1881 when Odiza Dagu, Michel Martin, and his father burned underbrush on a lot they intended to cultivate. They also seemed to have offered the trees to anyone who was willing to cut them. Agent Cherrier ordered them to stop, giving as his reason that Odiza Dagu was not interested in the wood and wanted only to cultivate the land, which Odiza Dagu readily admitted. Although he had no need for the wood and told the DIA that he would gladly let others take it, Cherrier interpreted this as laziness. He also complained that Odidadagu had fenced the property, thus depriving poor residents of firewood, which made little sense in light of his desire for others to take the wood. Evidently, no one else had claimed the lot, which made it available for cultivation according to Gahnawage law. Nor did the Indian Act prevent Odidadagu from fencing a parcel of common land. On the basis of Cherrier's intervention, however, the DIA agreed that Odida Dagu must be made to desist. Although Cherrier claimed that he was concerned for the poor, it is likely that Odida Dagu's fencing was interfering with his own illegal pasturing on the reserve, which would come to the attention of the DIA in 1883. There is no indication that Odzidzadagun's actions transgressed either the provisions of the Indian Act or Gahnawage law, nor did he construct his fence for the purpose of keeping others from gaining access to firewood. Nevertheless, the DIA accepted Sherrier's counsel without consulting the chiefs and refused to allow Odzidzadagun to take possession of the lot in a lawful way. The Indian agent also played a key role in directing the effort to regulate land transactions. In October 1878, Cherrier reported that some abuses exist among the Indians in their transactions, which have disastrous consequences. According to him, certain unscrupulous notaries visited Gahnawage to draw up notarial conveyances in exchange for high fees. To him, this was evidence that many Indians are victims either by their ignorance or through the want of good advice, as the documents were of little or no legal value. This is quite rich coming from Cherrier, who had a reputation among the chiefs for placing great stock in such documents, and he would have known that they often gave the claimant a definitive advantage. To further his point, Cherrier relayed the story of a man named Zonomohese who borrowed $15 from a man named Ganuwadaze, Louis Bova. Zonomohese gave Ganuwadaze the deed to his land as collateral for the loan. When he defaulted, Ganuwadaze demanded that he pay $5 in interest every month until he was able to pay the entire amount. Cherrier said that such cases were very common. This example certainly illustrates the possible problems associated with an unregulated system of deeds in the context of legal and political uncertainty, but Cherrier believed that the solution lay in creating a land registry to be managed by the Indian agent. This would give him the information and power to prevent fraudulent transactions. 
The DIA approved his suggestion and asked him to present it to the chiefs, as they were authorized under the Indian Act of 1876 to establish such a registry. The chiefs, however, had no interest in handing over this kind of power to the agent, and no registry was established until years later. Conclusions regarding DIA interventions, 1878-1883 As a whole, these cases reveal that by about 1880, the government and laws of Gahnawage had been destabilized to the point that there was no effective government. And the new source of authority, the rather chaotic Department of Indian Affairs, was unprepared and under-resourced. The Indian Act was on the books, but the DIA did not know how to implement it and was continually discovering new ways in which the Act did not meet its needs. Nevertheless, the Department showed no interest in Gahnawage law or in supporting the chiefs as they attempted to lead their community and resolve problems. It consulted with the chiefs in some cases, though not in others, and even when it did accept the chief's decision, it justified this in terms of its own bureaucratic, colonial logic. The department saw Gahnawage as legally under the Indian Act, even though the community had not agreed to it, and the act was clearly unenforceable and inappropriate. The two orders in council, 1876 and 1881, proved ineffective as well. Even the DIA realized that few colonial laws would be effective until lots had been surveyed and location tickets issued, yet Gahnawage Hronu were provided with no legal certainty in the meantime. In the absence of Canadian laws that made sense for the Gahnawage context, the department often resorted to extra-legal measures, such as insisting that the agent act outside of the law. Its response to land conflicts was so inconsistent that most Gahnawage Hironu had no way of knowing what to expect from it. Sometimes it followed the precedents established in similar situations of the past. Sometimes it did not. Sometimes it consulted the chiefs, but often it did not. Sometimes it asked the agent to act outside of the law, but at other times the agent himself made this request of the department. Overall, the DIA presented itself as the source of law and order, and Gahnawage Hronu as lawless, unreasonable people, but the evidence suggests quite the opposite. The department actively undermined Gahnawage leaders and laws, but could not provide a viable alternative. In the meantime, Gahnawage Hronu had no way of predicting how the department would react if they plowed a field or cut down a tree, and the high cost of the many court cases was largely borne by the Gahnawage public, which no longer controlled its own money. A Temporary Woodlot By the spring of 1881, the chiefs understood that the DIA could not be relied on to ensure that Gahnawage Hronu had access to firewood and that it would not support any such request from themselves. They decided to take matters into their own hands. Calling a general assembly, they asked the community for the authority to pass laws on wood. A majority voted that the chiefs be empowered to pass whatever measures concerning the wood they seem proper. 
The chiefs immediately gave every community member the right to cut any trees, except maples, anywhere on the territory, including on fenced lots. This was simply a restatement and reassertion of Gahnawage law as it had been articulated throughout the century. In taking this step, Gahnawage Hirono chose to acknowledge the authority of their chiefs and the legitimacy of their own legal order. The resolution of the chiefs, delivered to Ottawa in person by Chief Satagayandu, reads thus. Considering the scarcity of fuel to a great number of our Indians, who are not holders of wooded lots, in consequence of the provisions of the law prohibiting them to cut any wood either on the ground pertaining to individuals who deny the use of said wood, taking benefit of the law favoring them, resulting grave inconveniences in many cases by the incarceration of our warriors and entailing thereby considerable expenses of our funds. That in future, until further orders be it permitted to our Indians to cut any wood standing or on the ground in whatever place be found, either on lots fenced within ten years, as these fences being constructed since 1876 for the sole purpose of depriving the community of the wood therefrom, excepting always the cutting down of sugar maple trees. Fences built before 1876, according to the chiefs, served legitimate purposes, but most fences constructed after that could be legally disregarded. Alarmed by this turn of events, which threatened DIA power, Agent Cherrier argued that if the department allowed the decision to stand, more disputes would inevitably follow. Reaching for familiar settler colonial and capitalist tropes, he claimed that Gahnawa Gehronu, who lacked access to firewood, were irresponsible and wasteful. In his view, the only solution was to establish a woodlot to provide for those who needed firewood. The DIA approved the idea and asked him to set up the woodlot with the help of at least one chief. The next winter, 1881-1882, Cherrier and chiefs Dion Ragardo and Asenaze, Thomas Deer, decided that the woodlot would be a piece of land owned by Tirehta. Why Tirehta would agree to this is uncertain, but perhaps the lot in question was the one that chiefs had awarded to de Gayunwage in 1879, from which he had never been evicted, see page 148. Perhaps the woodlot scheme was a compromise agreement in which he was allowed to keep the lot if he permitted others to cut trees there. Setting up a community woodlot was not customary practice, but it was a temporary way to give people access to firewood. The woodlot solution was used for some time, and chiefs continued to designate a disputed lot as a place for community woodcutting each winter. For example, in the winter of 1883-1884, they decided that a lot claimed by both Sadegarunjas and Tireta would be a public woodlot. They did the same for a lot claimed by both Sadegarunjas, also known as Arine Diabo, or Antoine Sadegarunjas, and the heirs of Onunquatgoa. This practice reveals that Gahnawa Gehronu could not count on the DIA to prioritize their needs, but that they were sometimes able to force its hand. Although the public woodland, as implemented, was probably not the preferred solution of most Gahnawa Gehronu, 
It was a solution that was actually useful and at least consonant with Gahnawage traditions. Conclusion The actions of Gahnawage leaders show that they were determined to protect the best interests of their community, even if they had to find ways of working around the unpredictability, inaction, and active harm of the DIA. In the wake of their failure to relocate the community, the chiefs tried multiple creative responses to the DIA challenge to their authority. At times, they were careful and accommodating. At other times, they were strident and combative. But they always insisted on their sovereignty over their lands and opposed uninvited Canadian intervention in their affairs. The 1870s represent a sea change for the chiefs and the DIA in the everyday lives of Gahnawage Hronu, as well as in the relationship between Gahnawage Hronu and their land. Every revision of Indian law gave the department more power and new ways to undermine indigenous leaders. Gahnawage law and the Council of Chiefs were still in place but on ever shakier ground. Chiefs had greater difficulty asserting their authority in matters of citizenship and land management, and they could no longer spend money according to their own priorities. Population growth throughout the region produced land and wood shortages, which were then significantly exacerbated by a destructive, asymmetrical contest between two legal orders. The final DIA pressure tactic was a refusal to confirm new chiefs to replace most chiefs who died throughout the 1880s. By 1887, the three remaining elderly chiefs had been deemed incapable of fulfilling their duties, and soon afterward, the DIA imposed an elected band council to replace them. Chapter 7 The initial spark of the conflicts described in this chapter was often provided by a few large landowners who wanted to have property rights like white people. In particular, they wanted the right to keep others from cutting wood on their lands. The DIA responded by insisting on existing legislation and passing orders in council to impose its own view of landownership. It was so inconsistent and so unpredictable that Gantnawa Gerhronu had little legal certainty or recourse. By the 1880s, DIA actions and strategic indifference had led to the elimination of most common property resources and had made it virtually impossible for Gahnawage chiefs to govern. However, in the absence of surveyed boundaries between lots, the department still had no way of effectively imposing its law. Nor had location tickets been issued, which meant that land was held on the basis of witness testimony or an assortment of deeds and conveyances. More radical and intrusive DIA moves were yet to come. Land surveys are the subject of the next chapter. The 1880 Indian Act allowed the department to authorize land surveys, including subdivision surveys, without the approval of the community, and Gahnawage was one of its first targets.